Welcome to Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Ollie Judge. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. This week, the new normal. The last year has seen a drastic change in the ways that we work and our relationship with the office. While technology has come a long way in bridging the gaps in the ways that we work, today we'll look at the human element and how our outlook on work needs to adapt to a more modern approach. Joining us today on the show, we have two guests, Ben Laker and Claudia Commonell. My name is Claudia Krummenerl, and I'm responsible at Capgemini for our client interaction with regards to people in an organization. My name is Ben Laker. I'm a university professor who writes for Forbes and Harvard Business Review. So uh, this whole episode is about a new normal, new normal in inverted commas. Is this actually a new normal or just an accelerated normal created by the pandemic? From my personal perspective, I feel like everyone's just been dragging their feet for a really long time rather than actually putting in proper distributed working measures in place and all that kind of stuff. Do you guys agree or do you think that this truly is a new normal and we need to start thinking in different ways? I actually think it's, it is a new normal. The whole topic of remote working and having distributed workforce, having a new balance between remote work and being in the office, that's a conversation that has been there before. But I don't think we had figured out completely what this would mean for a virtual organization to the fullest, what this would mean for leadership, what this would mean for also organizational processes. I think the pandemic has forced us to really rethink organizations and how they tick and also is still asking us to rethink what the new employee social contract will be. I agree with Claudia. It certainly is a new normal compared to what has gone before. It's what we would classify as a as an existential shock. And this isn't the first and it won't be the last. If you remember back to the Icelandic ash cloud <laughs> overnight, massive disruption changed the way that certain sectors, certain industries operated. Think back to 9-11 as well, changed the way that air travel would ever be the same again. I can remember, and I'm sure many of you listening can also, you may be on a transatlantic flight, you could actually go in and see the pilot. To many people today, that seems insane that that could even happen, but it did happen and it was very normal. But of course, then it became the new normal, but for air travel. So as Claudia said, for a working world, yeah, this is the new normal. We're not going back. And whether you call it the new normal or the great reset or the old new normal, whatever you call it, we're not going back. And even if we could, there are so many businesses that either have collapsed or shed significant amounts of workforce or transformed into something so different that even if they wanted to go back tomorrow, they couldn't. I think that's a lovely point and a, a nice anecdote to start off with. So when we started talking about the new normal and obviously when the pandemic kicked in, everyone was forced to do new things. What were the initial challenges that most people weren't really expecting that became challenges? So I think there was a bit of a technology hurdle, but Claudia, before you were speaking about how it was also the human factor of working hours sort of got completely disparate overnight. What did you see as maybe the sort of like top things that maybe we weren't expecting? I think we had probably, I would say, three issues or challenges that I saw. 
really number one was technology. I think not everybody was equipped to really have a fully remote workplace and so technology in, in, in terms of software and hardware. Second one was actually more like a security issue. So how do you dial in to all these systems remotely that you have to have network access for? Bandwidth of the system, so to, to make sure everything works. So for us, we had to change a lot of the accesses so that people can sufficiently go to the SharePoints, to the team sites, to all the applications that we are running. So they completely changed the security, how to do that, but then at the same time established higher security because people obviously have their laptop now at home to make sure that there are certain blockers that you don't give away too much sensitive data. And the third one is more a human one, really around collaboration and leadership, because it sounds all very nice. We're going to have teams meeting all day long, but doesn't mean that it's effective. It doesn't mean that we know how to collaborate in this distant environment. And everybody had very different issues, whether that is a partner that is working as well. So childcare, how do you organize your day? It's things from stress management, right? Because you can work from 7 to 11 p.m. So basically sit on your desk the whole time. It's then really health, mental health, but also physical health. I think I've never had so many conversations around how how do you effectively collaborate in a in a remote work environment? How do you do workshops? How do you do these kind of sessions that you used to do in presence for hours? And, and how do you do that? One of the really big challenges for firms is innovation. And, and the reason for this is because much of the conventional wisdom, many of the theoretical models, many of the wise persons of innovation have always said that it requires face-to-face. That in an ideal world, people come together, they have a whiteboarding session, and they get really creative and sparks of innovations, new products, new services, new ways to change the world. But it all relies on face-to-face. Yet we know that within global lockdown, some organizations have obviously fallen off a cliff and some have disappeared altogether, never to return. Some have asked for bailouts, but others, their pace of innovation has actually accelerated. So if you're like me, if you immediately sign up to Netflix and every other streaming device that's out there right now to get you through those dark and dreary nights in lockdown, then that's explained. So I think they onboarded around circa 16 million new subscribers. And what you're seeing now is as the world goes back to some sense of normal, in quotation marks, those subscriptions are falling. But if you're looking at the strides made by Amazon and also Twitter. Twitter almost immediately announced employees could work from home forever. That's not for the period, that's forever. That decision was so quickly made because it was already there to be made at some point. So what you start to see is much of these innovations are not necessarily new ideas, but those ideas and the processes to get those ideas have been expedited. Is there perhaps a trust issue with legacy firms versus the newer ones? So we saw in the last few years, especially in London, they're putting up giant glass skyscrapers where they try and ram as many people into a room as possible so that managers can helicopter over all of their people. Was there an issue initially when we went into lockdown that people felt like that they were losing control? And perhaps previous to the pandemic, they wouldn't have made these decisions because they didn't want to lose that control and have had to sort of like make a bit of a catch up with their culture because it was wired for this sort of top down imposing control approach. But now they can't do that anymore. I was 
talking to different clients and also looking at our own organization, I actually think it does not have a pattern about industry, you know, whether this is now a tech company or whether this is a manufacturing company or whatever it is. I think it's actually more two things. One, have they embarked on their digital journey? And not just digital journey in terms of we're going to implement a new cloud system somewhere, but really effectively digital journey, which means looking at your ways of working, at your governance, at the way you innovate at the way you do business or you want to do business. So really reinventing customer experience, reinventing operational excellence. And with that, looking at new skills, at new leadership and new ways of working. So the companies that have embarked on that journey, they had faster and better data available to actually work remotely because systems are more connected and they they have more standards. And I think they had to rethink their culture before. And I think that the second element I want to stress, I think those companies who've been effective in switching to remote work have a culture of collaboration, of trusting each other or rethinking of how you collaborate. Those companies who'd worked on their digital journey before and who'd reconsidered their leadership practices before, and I think they were better off in moving to this remote work environment. Okay, so if you were a company that maybe didn't have everything set up culturally correctly, and when this all went down, you kind of put in a load of patchwork temporary solutions. So you're like, okay, everyone has Zoom now, fixed. If you're one of those organizations, how do you actually start trying to change your culture? Like who's in charge? How do you go about it? Also, how do you go about it when you're remote and no one's in the same room? So you've got to sort of have maybe seven different conversations about it. What would be your approach in tackling maybe an organization that was a little bit stuck in the past and was more hours on the clock than outputs? What we're doing with ourselves was really talk to the team leads or the the project leads and think about how do you connect with your team, right? So what kind of meeting structure, communication structure do you need to rethink? And how do you do that? And Simple things. How do you start a meeting? How do you delegate? So you have got typical protocols of how you delegate a task. How do you need to do that differently in a remote context and less give a time frame or a kind of a way how to do it, but more what is the expected outcome? And I feel like we're moving more to agile practices, kind of have more quick touch points each day or during the day to make sure we're on the same page. Because the longer you sit alone, the longer you can walk off in different directions that may not be intended. And then the third recommendation is really don't shy away from working sessions or workshops online because it is possible. You just have to rethink of how you do that. You can still do whiteboards or brown paper sessions online. It's just you can't fight over the color of post-its in one room, but you, you do that virtually, right? So you can still do that. It needs a little bit more effort in engaging with the team and making sure everybody is engaged because the distraction you have at home is higher than when you sit in a room together. I actually wanted to dig a little bit more into distractions and how when you're at home, things are completely different and your working hours change. And 
to be honest, also your productive hours may change. For example, I know that I'm more productive first thing in the morning, get up seven o'clock in the morning till about 10 o'clock and then into the evening, not necessarily those middle hours. Has it really changed or wasn't that always the case? You just worked through it because you sat in the office. So say, for example, my bad hours have always been after lunch between two to four. That doesn't change just because I'm sitting at home. But now I can organize my day a bit differently and say, that's the time when I walk my dog or that's the time where I have a coffee or so. I think the personal product, that, that didn't change. It's just you're more conscious to it because it's just you in front of the computer. It's just the awareness that is higher. So how do you start to build balance off the back of that then? So there's been a lot of talk about people working longer because they're at home, their commute's gone. Essentially, that time that might have been your commute before is now, oh, I can work during this hour. How do you make sure that your team members aren't getting lost in that and extending their hours and almost devaluing their time? The commute is an interesting one. I think the data says it's adding about 400 additional hours per year per employee which is an enormous amount. Microsoft are, in fact, developing a product right now to simulate a virtual commute. What that looks like, I'm not sure. It may be an app or some sort of transitionary system, but they've identified that people cannot go from home life straight to work life without some mental disruption. They believe it can cause cognitive overload. That's one of the primary issues with working at home. One of the benefits of an office is that it is focused on the same thing. So from a cognitive perspective, what you are doing is avoiding overload. And very much that is what you have at home because it's very sensory. It's full of distractions. It's full of everything which causes your brain to go into cognitive overload mode. And that's even before you're surrounded by other people who are not working in the same organization as you. Someone is saying, would you like me to pick up on this? Would you like me to do this? Would you like me to do this? All of that coming in, that creates a sense of tiredness that you would not have experienced before even when you add in a stressful commute and bookend it at either end of the day. So that's why we know that this situation at the moment must be punctuated throughout the day, as Claudia has mentioned, with some R&R activity. And it's not because employees are not necessarily avoiding work. It's to support their well-being. But of course, the challenge is that not everybody wants to bookend those R&R activities at the same time. And that's linked to their circadian rhythm. And when people peak and find their trough at certain points of the day is, of course, different. And we do have those persons who really peak in the morning versus those who peak in the afternoon. So, of course, the real challenge, how do you accommodate everybody's circadian rhythm to ensure that, yes, they do undertake work, but they're doing so on a time scale and on a rhythm that benefits themselves, but in doing so might mean they're not available to be in synchronization with the wider team. 
So burnout's been a hot topic for the last couple of weeks, I think. As everyone's been in lockdown this long, the cracks are starting to show on everyone. And maybe when you're in an office, you can see whether someone's tired and like they should go on holiday or have a bit of a break. What are the tangible tools to actually keep up with people when they're at home and maybe they don't turn on their camera all that often and they're not making all the right noises for you to know how things are going for them? That's a tricky question because I think the only thing you can do is you can try because you can't force people to be open and to be vulnerable. And I think that's that's the whole point. The time it took us and the team, and I have people across the globe in my team, but the time it took us to be open and to admit that, hey, this is a struggle, not just for you on the other side, but for me as well. So for example, I've been very open with that, that I the first four weeks, I had to rethink really how I approach work because I was basically on the phone from 7 to 10 p.m. with almost no break. So really struggled myself. And this made people to be more open with their own issues they struggle. And the camera is important because that's the only way you can see each other. Having my own camera on, even if I don't feel like it, is is you really need to role model that and not accept excuses like, oh, my bandwidth is bad. Well, yeah, my bandwidth is also bad and, and, and it's shaky, whatever. It's like, come on, let's kind of look each other into the eyes. So this is the role modeling and also like the discipline of keeping it up because it's obviously easier not having the camera on and then doing something at the side. But the camera also is is a mechanism for you to stay connected and be present in the conversation you're just having. And thirdly, it's really just ask. Ask genuine and caring question. People will know if you're just asking out of politeness. Generally being interested in the other person that you're talking to. That is the only way this can work. During this time, there's been a lot of job shuffling, like people have either had to leave their jobs, join new companies. So that means there's a lot of new starters in the market that maybe don't know the people that they're working with, have never met them in person, don't really understand the culture. How do you bridge that gap? Because that's a completely different problem to moving yourself home. How do you make sure that people are actually connecting with their managers, but also their co-workers and all that kind of stuff? I mean, actually, this is a perfect question linking back to your first question. Like, is this a new normal or is this just an acceleration of, of what was there before? This is why it's the new normal, because you have to rethink how you do onboarding completely. Because if you're trying to do the same kind of onboarding and just throw over a laptop and a, something to read, you're missing out on that connection part. So you need to make sure people get to know each other. There are coffee sessions to introduce the team. There's something more casual. You block in time to really get to know your new colleagues and make that connection because you need to transfer this cultural element into a virtual process. And that's that's not the normal onboarding process. You really need to think about how to make that fun and that your values shine through. I do see a lot of the social aspect of working is what dissolves the fastest when you move to remote because you can't go for coffee with someone, you can't go have a meal in the evening or anything like that to get to know each other as friends beyond just who you're working with. My next question is, and I did warn you guys about this one, what's the worst advice that you see people being given around remote working and distributed working and why? What's the stuff that you see that, you know, those like management gurus on LinkedIn go like, oh, yes, this is how you should do things. And you read it and you're like, oh, please, not this again. I think a number of people would simply rely on what has worked previously. And that's not confined to this phenomena that exists in 
any phenomena where an existential shock has occurred. But one needs to accept that what has worked in the past will no longer work because it's a new normal. It is a new set of variables. It's a new set of constraints. So those relationships that occurred between X and performance in 2019 no longer have that relationship. And of course, now you might find a different variable has an outcome with performance. For example, if you think about much of the philosophies about extroversion and how so-called extroverted leaders, people who can transform vision into action, people that have charisma, and these people, to some, were great leaders. Now, of course, one of the key things around extroversion is the need to offload to people. It is the need to communicate. It is the need to build one's energy base from those around us. In the situation right now, those people are completely at a disadvantage, completely. And because the new normal is going to be fixed as is, it's not going back, you suddenly have a whole triage of people who may have been second best before March 2020, who are now showing on KPIs as top performers for their companies. Claudia, do you have any uh, bugbears that people bring up all the time? Number one, in times of uncertainty, some people look for tools and toolboxes. I've been asked so many times, and I think there's so many people who want toolboxes for how to make effective remote working. And I think that's just an illusion because you're trying to get control over something that is uncertain and where they just have to deal with uncertainty. And the second a really bad advice that is out there is around this business case of people now being at home. So I actually doubt that the business case is that favorable and we're going to save so much more commute time. We're going to save so much more travel costs. We're going to be a much more sustainable and climate neutral company. I think the business case is a little bit grayer than that. We talk about collaboration culture quite a bit. That is hard to put into a KPI in a business case. And then we talked about burnout and, and stress management. Just the negative impact on a business case by, let's say, 50% of the workforce being in a long-term sick leave. There are so many more variables to take into consideration to a business case that it's not just about being more productive or not traveling or, or not having commute time. So I think the simplicity of the business cases is one that I see out there that's a bit more gray. So we've got vaccines in the, in the mix now. I think there have been some pros from people working at home and learning their own working habits and all that kind of stuff. And how do you maintain going forward when people do start going back into offices that maybe not everyone needs to go back. Uh, ben, I, I know you've been looking to, you know, what Twitter and Microsoft are looking at with kind of like risk reward of keeping people at home. So do you have anything around that on how they're maintaining their culture as maybe some of them are going back to work and some of them are staying at home? Many organizations will follow Twitter's offer to employees. You could also use that word control because if you think around why they give that as an option. That's not a gift. It's a strategic decision. And every strategic decision a company ever makes typically favors the company, not its employees. There's a reason for doing that. There's a rationale. It's because we know that those who work from home, productivity goes up. And those from work from home are also cheaper to manage because one does not need huge real estate. So there are some big strategic decisions as to why that would be the case. So in terms of companies choosing to bring people 
whack, I think you will start to see that if some of the major corporations in the world have already decided that the office is dead, Twitter being one, Square being another, there are many others who are following suit, then that sets a benchmark. It allows companies to compare themselves and start to think, okay, well, if these companies have already considered the relative merits of doing this, why would we not follow suit? I'm sure there will be some organizations that will look to return. Many others simply won't. And you may also have a situation where companies want their workers to return, but actually workers have decided that they will not. I believe it already is in Germany a human right to decide where one works from. I believe the litigation is currently going through in Germany. This is being looked at. It will be a test case. It'll be the first of its kind in the world. I fully expect that to be granted. If it's granted there, very soon see this as a legality. Persons will be able to choose whether they work from home or in a place of an office. And of course, by that point in time, it no longer becomes the company's prerogative. They have no choice over the matter. They will likely have to provide two options and worker will decide whether or not to have a blend, perhaps certain days come into an office or remain totally at home. For employee flexibility and those who have fought for a long time for more flexible options with regard to employability, this is going to be a huge win for them. I think companies may go back to the, the old ways of working and traveling because they feel that's the way to preserve their culture. But I think actually through this pandemic, and Ben described it quite a bit, the power is actually not with the organization, but it's with the employee because the employee decides when he feels safe and not. And now it's the pandemic that has kind of caused this shift in thinking, but you could see that the employee has the right to decline attending a workshop or a conference or whatever they need to do if there's a risk to their health. So it's already a shift in bargaining power. And if it's actually your right to choose where you work and how you work, it's even more extreme. And so I think companies who want to have the best employees in the future will have to rethink how they work. So this new working paradigm, they will have to address. There's no other way around this because employees will otherwise choose to join a different company. And so the, the war for talent is already high and there's a lot of stakes. So I don't think organizations can afford to stay the way they are. What would your ideal scenario look like going forward? Let's talk a little bit about the role of the office now. Is the office still going to be a bank of desks, sort of how we have it now with meeting rooms, or does it become more of a hub? It'll be a mix because you can still see that some employees prefer to work in the office and you'll have to provide some space where they can work. And it cannot all be creative and innovation space. But the question is, how many seats do you have to have and how is this organized, right? I would say the open office is dead because when people go into the office, they go there either to actually work. So you need more privacy if you're up in calls and, and need to talk on the phone the whole time. So you will have to have actually more areas where you can do phone calls and do your work or they will come to collaborate. The coffee corner or the kitchen is always an important place, but I feel it's it's more practical at the moment in most organizations than it is, let's say, not everybody is a Facebook or like a Twitter or Microsoft in Silicon Valley where you have fancy areas. So to rethink this concept is, is probably crucial. But I think it'll be a hybrid between 
really working space versus collaboration and creativity space? I would completely agree because if you think at home, productivity has gone up. So that must mean as a variable that people can work from home and they're working harder. But there's missing something. What's missing? It's this spark, this connectivity, collaboration. So I very much think that people's primary residence of work will be their home forevermore, but people will regularly venture into an office of sort as a hub, as Claudia has defined it, where actually it looks a little bit like a Starbucks or equivalent. This is not necessarily a place to work. That means remote work can stay forevermore without the huge risk of burnout. I'd agree. And just to wrap this up, I think while many listeners may come into this conversation thinking that we're going to talk a lot about technology and, you know, how everyone VPNs in and all the cloud services that you can use. I think we've come around to the fact that it's more about control, trust and vulnerability. And let's say before the pandemic and everything happened, there was this word that everyone used to band around. We're open. We're a transparent company. But I don't think up until now anyone has truly been open. And Claudia, you were talking about how you have to open up that vulnerability a little bit to work remotely effectively because otherwise people don't know who they're talking to or how. Is some of that vulnerability and openness when we go back, is that going to disappear? Are people going to put their guard back up? I think it's the misperception of digital transformation that that is the technology problem. It's never been. I think people would have liked to think that because it appears easier. But any piece of technology, in the end, it's humans needing to execute it, right? And so it's the same here. The technology is an enabler. It's something that helps us to connect and that allows us to connect because if we didn't have the technology, all of this wouldn't be possible. And so the connectivity, the software, the bandwidth, the speed of the computers, all that allows us to actually connect and to make the human connection possible. It's hard to say whether this vulnerability will go away or people will go back. I think it's it's human to wanting to protect yourself of vulnerability. It's probably how we brought up. But I think if you could see the shift of leadership theory and also the leadership styles that are effective, I think there's a tendency to have more human connection in that and, and to focus more on the empathy, on, on the human relations so I can't imagine that it's fully going to go back to normal, especially if we're staying in this kind of remote context. So it'll, it'll still require us to connect. I hope that it's maintained in its current guise. I think it's very important for people to have a sense of shared community and the vulnerability that sits underneath that in order for it to work. So I really do think that it should be on everybody's scorecard to try and maintain what that looks like in different organizations is for them to ultimately decide. But if anything from this pandemic is to remain as an artifact, I hope it is this sense of vulnerability shared amongst our communities, amongst our organizations and the global workforce. What a lovely sentiment to end on. Big thank you to Ben Laker and Claudia Commonell for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast was brought to you by Capgemini Invent. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.